You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. in advance for the quality of this recording. What happened on this Sunday is we were not allowed to use the normal room that we rent from the elementary school for our worship service, so we had to use their gymnasium. So everybody was on bleachers in a, in a room with horrible sound quality. Not that, not that our other room has great sound quality, but um, our music leader just had a, his amp and a guitar, and, and we couldn't bring in any of our own equipment because they feared that we would scratch up their floor, so we had to record this message on my phone and this is the best that we can do. At some point you might hear somebody in the crowd turn and ask for a cup of water or drink or whatever. That's probably one of my kids because you know you can't go more than 20 minutes without asking for a drink of water or a crayon or something like that. So that's the reason for the quality of the audio as you hear it here and uh, I just pray that this message as it was delivered would be a blessing to you. John chapter 17. We're going to read together verses 1 through 5, and then we'll pray together before we begin. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we are so grateful for, again, this place to meet and the opportunity to study your word. And it is our desire that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to behold in your word wonderful things. That you would convict us and exhort us and comfort us and encourage us in and through your word. And most importantly, that you would sanctify us by the truth, that we as your people might come to know Christ more deeply, more profoundly through today through our study of your word as we look upon his words. We thank you for your grace and goodness which accomplishes all of these things. Bless this time now we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're in John chapter 17 and this is the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. And he is praying for his people. He's praying for specifically the apostles, the 11 apostles that were there with him that night. And he is praying beyond them to all who would believe upon him because of their testimony. And so consequently, this prayer is focusing a lot on themes of salvation. And we've noticed that. He's talking about the salvation of those whom the Father has given to him. And the fact that he came into this world to accomplish that work of salvation for those whom the Father had given to him. And he defines and describes eternal life in verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one and only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so all of these themes of salvation are going to are really unfolded through the rest of this prayer. And as we look upon the Lord Jesus Christ praying for his people, praying that they may come to know him, praying that, that for their salvation of those who the Father has given to him, and confessing to the Father that he had accomplished that great work of salvation, we now come to verse 5. And in verse 5, we get a glimpse back into eternity past and the glory that the Son had with the Father before the world began. And we get a glimpse of that glory that the Son expected that the Father would give to him for having accomplished all of this great work. So verse 5 is one of these profound and deep and mysterious verses that unpacks for us in many ways the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So we see in verse 5 the deity of Christ because only somebody who is God could pray something that he prays in verse 5. When he says in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Sorry. Is that a cricket or something on my neck? <laughs> if this is uncomfortable for you. <laughs> okay, so we're going to look this morning at the divine nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is evidenced in two facts. Number one, that he could pray for and expect this glory in verse 5. And that he had at one time possessed this glory in verse 5. That he could pray for and expect this glory. And that he at one time uh, possessed this glory. Both of those things are evidence that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. So verse 1, or verse 5, number 1, that he could pray for and expect this glory. Father, now Father, glorify me together with yourself. Now this prayer, what he's praying in verse 5, is the logical consequence of everything that he has said in the first four verses. Every phrase that we have studied in the last five, six weeks, however long it's been that we've been in John 17, every one of these phrases builds upon the previous phrase. Everything, it's it's building to a crescendo, and it it sort of climaxes in verse 5 when he prays for this glory. He begins in verse 1, Father, I pray that you would glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And so the the language of verses 5 is somewhat familiar. It's familiar because he prays something similar in verse 1. But though the language of verse 1 is similar, the meaning is slightly different. In verse 1, he is praying about the glory that he would receive for his work on the cross. That's why he says, the hour now has come. And he's looking specifically at that hour on the cross. We've seen in John how the reference to that hour, or the hour, or my hour, or my time, all of that is packed with theological significance, as Jesus was anticipating the cross. And now, on the night before he was crucified, he is looking forward to the cross and saying, the time of this has come. And so, Father, glorify your Son through the cross, so that on the cross the Son may glorify the Father. That's what he's praying for in verse 1. In verse 5, he's not looking at the cross so much as looking forward beyond the cross and praying that the Father would return him to the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. In other words, he's not looking at the glory of the cross in verse 5, but the glory that would come after the cross when the Father would raise him from the dead, he would ascend to heaven, he would be seated at the right hand of the Father, and receive the same glory that he enjoyed with the Father in eternity past. So, this is really the logical conclusion of everything he has said. Since the Father would glorify him on the cross, since he would glorify the Father on the cross, since the Father had committed to him the salvation of all those people that the Father had given to him, since the Father had committed those people to the Son, since the Father had given to the Son authority over all flesh, and since the Son had accomplished all of the work, every last detail of it, that the Father had given him to do. For that reason, he prays, Father, now the time has come. Return me to glory, the glory that I had with you before the world was. Because Jesus Christ is uniquely worthy of that glory. And notice that he is not here just asking that he would receive a little credit, that he would get some honor for what he is about to do. He is is asking to share in the very glory that the Father owned and possessed and was his by virtue of his nature. He's not asking that he would just reflect that glory like Moses reflected the glory of the Lord when he came down from the mountain. He's not asking to just shine forth a little bit of that glory like you and I are are made to be image bearers and and, and reflectors of the glory of God. That's not what he's asking for. Look at verse 5. Father, glorify me together with yourself. He is looking at the glory that the Father had and saying, that Father, that glory is glory that I am worthy of 
Because I have accomplished the work that you've given me to do. Because I have saved the people, all the people whom you have given to me. For that reason, I am worthy of all of this glory. And so please return me to that glory that you and I possessed and shared before the world ever was. He is worthy of that glory. And here's how this proves the deity of Christ. Here's how it proves the deity of Christ. God does everything that he does for the sake of his own glory. Creation, redemption, the glorification of his saints, all that God does, the creation of the heavens, everything that God does, he is doing and has done for the sake of his own glory. And the, 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 the son's role in redemption is to magnify the glory of the father, to demonstrate the father, and to reveal to us who the father is. The spirit's role in redemption is to point all of our attention to focus on Christ, so that in seeing Christ, we might see the nature of the Father. And in seeing the nature of the Father, we might glorify that one true God. That is what the, that is what the Son does, reveals that glory of God to us. And so all that God does in the revelation of himself is to draw our attention through Christ to the Father so that we may behold the glory of God and be changed by that glory and, and glorify God and, and, and honor him and worship him for who he is. So all that God does, he does for his glory. And Jesus said in John chapter 5, the Father doesn't judge anyone, but has committed all judgment of all men into the hands of the Son, so that all who honor the Son will honor the Father as well. And that nobody can honor the Father without also honoring the Son, or without first honoring the Son. So everything that the Father does has been given to him. Everything that the, everything, sorry, that the Son does and that God does is for his own glory and for the sake of his own glory. And God is jealous for his own glory. God is jealous for his own glory. What do we call it when we take something that belongs to God, glory, honor, worship, and reverence, and give it to something that is less than God? What is that called? It's called idolatry. And idolatry is a crime that is worthy of death because it takes something that belongs to God and God alone and lavishes it on something that is lesser. And so all the prohibitions against idolatry are, are there because God alone is worthy of all of the worship and honor and glory that we could ever give to him. If we had a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise, and if we had all of eternity to sing that with a thousand tongues, would we ever be able to exhaust the worth of his glory? We would not be able to. He is worth far more glory than we would ever be able to give to him, and far more honor than we could ever bestow upon him. So it is a high crime against the King of Heaven to take that honor and glory, which he alone is worthy of, and to lavish it onto a lesser creature. And so God is jealous for his glory. That is why he says in the, chap- in the book of Isaiah, chapters 42 and 48, that he would not give his glory to another. I'm going to read you two verses from Isaiah. Before I do, I want to set up a little bit of the context. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, uh, God, through Isaiah, is giving an indictment to the nation of Israel for all of their worship of false idols. And in this, this section, known sometimes as the trial of the false gods, in chapters 40 through about 51, 52, God is calling all of the idols of the nations and the idols of the nation of Israel to testify, and he's saying, if you're a God, tell me the end from the beginning. Tell me what happened in eternity past. Tell me what is going to happen in the future. Do something to show that you know something, that you're, you're omnipotent, that you're omniscient, that you are all-powerful, all that you have these abilities. And none of the idols, of course, can do it because the idols are dumb, they're mute, they're stupid, they're lifeless, they can't do any of that. And so God is indicting the nation for trusting in these false idols. And in that section, God says in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. That is my name. And in other words, Yahweh, the name Yahweh, I am, belongs to me. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. 
In Isaiah 48, verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory, I will not give to another. Now, God is jealous of his glory. And God would be the most despicable being that ever existed if he were to take glory that belongs solely to him and to lavish it on a lesser being. Because God is jealous for his glory, and he says in Isaiah, I will not share my glory with another. Those things and those people which are not God are not worthy of his glory, and God will not share that glory with any other. This is the, this is the crime of Romans 1, is it not? That those who know that God exists in your creation, they see his invisible attributes and, the, and the, the character of God on display in creation, that they refuse to give God glory, and instead exchange the glory of God for the form of a corruptible beast, birds of the air, four-footed creatures, and creeping things. And they worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. And so man, in his ignorance and his, in his willful rebellion, suppresses the truth of unrighteousness, and refuses to give honor and glory to the great God of heaven who alone deserves it. That's the crime of Romans chapter 1. And that degenerates into a sexual revolution, Romans 1 says, and then a homosexual revolution to the point where chaos and chaos and culture, uh, chaos reigns in culture. And when that happens, all of those who commit those crimes, idolatry, dishonoring father and mother, receiving, refusing to give God glory, those people are worthy of death. And so are those who approve of those who practice those things. The very first crime a fallen human being is to refuse to give God the glory that he is due. And so this prayer then of Jesus indicates exactly who it is, does it not? Father, glorify me together with yourself. Now who is able to say that? Only one who is God in human flesh. Can you imagine if I were to say that? Makes you shudder, doesn't it? If you were to say that? Is there anybody here that is that is bold or arrogant? And prideful enough to honestly say that you deserve divine glory and that you expect to participate in that divine glory as if you have some right to it? The only person who could pray a prayer like this is one who is himself God in human flesh, equal with the Father in nature, taking upon himself a human nature and coming into this world. He was fully aware that he had a right to and a claim to that glory and that he could claim it. And it's not arrogant for him to do so. It's not, it's not presumptuous for him to pray that God would glorify him. Because he has a right to that divine glory, and he is worthy of that divine glory. Just as when I walk out of here today, I go get in my truck and drive off, you don't say, well, that's awfully presumptuous of him, to go jump in that truck, truck and drive off as if it's his. It is mine. I have every right to use the truck as I want, right? Just like that, it is not presumptuous for the Lord Jesus to claim that divine glory and to pray for it and to expect it. Why? Because it is his by, it is his by right. He has a right to it and a claim to it by virtue of what he has done having accomplished all the work that the Father has given him to do, and by virtue of the fact of who he is, that he is God in human flesh. So this verse proves the deity of Christ, because it demonstrates that he could pray for and he could expect that glory. Now compare his expectation and his assumption, presumption of that glory, which was rightly his, to what our attitude should be. Our attitude should never be to glorify ourselves, or to draw attention to ourselves, or to honor ourselves, or to somehow step between other people and God so that we can get a little bit of that limelight. Our attitude should always be to glorify God and not ourselves. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because your loving kindness and because of your truth. That is the attitude of every righteous man. No priest, no prophet, no king, no righteous or godly person, no believer could ever pray the way that Jesus prays here, unless he were God in human flesh. And that's exactly what Jesus is. He's God in human flesh. And so he can pray. 
that the Father would honor him and glorify him. But look secondly at the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. The second thing that indicates that Jesus is God is that he once possessed this glory. Look what he says in verse 5. To glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now you go back in time as far as your mind can reach. Back before God said, let there be light. Go to Genesis 1-1 and then step back a few moments before that. In fact, step back years and eons and maybe millennia or thousands of years or however long it was when God created the angels. The angels came into being because they were here when God created. They were in existence when God created the world. Because the angels sang for joy when God laid the foundations of the world. I think it's Job or one of the Psalms says. Go back before the creation of the angels. When nothing existed, what existed? God always existed. He existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect harmony, perfect communion, perfect fellowship with himself. Three persons having a conversation, three persons living together, dwelling together, one God, one nature, one essence. But you go back in eternity past before the world ever was, and you've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they dwell together and, and are together as one in perfect unity and in unimaginable and infinite glory. And the Son shared all that glory with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. One in glory, one in substance, one in nature, free in person. And now Jesus is praying, looking back beyond eternity past, beyond the creation of the angels, to that glory that he had with the Father before ever an atom was spoken into existence. That glory that I shared with you back then, restore me to that and the fellowship that we have then. And the union and the, the, the glory of that moment. He is anticipating receiving again that glory that he had with the Father before the world ever was. This is the pre-existence of the Son. And it is taught everywhere. It's taught all through the Gospel of John. Let me give you three passages quickly. John 1, verses 1 through, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Was made. John 8, verse 58. You remember what Jesus taught, said to the Pharisees before Abraham was? Ego, I me, I am. And he took the divine name of God from Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, that indicates his ever-present, always-existing nature. He's the I am. And Jesus took that name and gave it to himself. And he said, before Abraham was born, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Before Abraham was born, I existed, that he was. He's the I am. John 16, verse 28, I came forth from the Father, and I have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. And all these times in John, as we have looked at Jesus referring to himself as the sent one, being sent by the Father, coming forth from the Father, the Father sending the Son, all of those references to him being sent, there are dozens of them. Every one of them in John's Gospel must be seen and interpreted in light of this truth that he existed in eternity past. In other words, his sending did not originate in time. Did not originate with him coming here 30 years old saying, I think I'm sent now by God. No, the sending of the Son happened in eternity past. When the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all agreed to the roles that each would have in salvation, when that was determined and that grace was granted in eternity past, the Father sent the Son into the world because he pre-existed. Philippians 2, 6 and 7, which we read at the beginning, he existed in the form of God and did not consider his equality of position and nature with God something to be held onto at all costs. That form or that appearance of God, it was his, his, his position as God was not something that he clutched to, Paul means in Ephesians 2. It's not that he laid aside his deity, but that all of the conveniences and the comforts and the, the blessings of being in that position, those he laid aside to come down here and take upon himself the nature of man. 
In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, Peter says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you all. It doesn't mean that God knew of Christ before Christ ever existed. When Peter says somebody is foreknown, foreknown in Scripture means that he was loved ahead of time. Back before the foundation of the world, the Father loved the Son. And now for our sake, in these last days, the Son has appeared to bring us salvation. There was actually a lot going on before the foundation of the world. Just do a, a step, quick study of that phrase. You'll see that before the foundation of the world, the Father chose a people for himself. Ephesians 1, 3-4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. The Father not only chose a people for himself, but he granted those people grace in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us from all eternity. Their names were written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. That is the Antichrist. He's speaking there of the Antichrist. All who dwell on the earth will worship the Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. And then not only did God choose the people and grant them grace and write their name in the Lamb's book of life, but he agreed together with himself and promised himself, one person of the Trinity to the other, that he would save those people. Titus chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. In the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. So God promised a salvation before the world was ever created. And then on top of all of that, he prepared for us a kingdom. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. So he chose a people, he granted them grace, he wrote their names in the book of life, he gave them to his son, he promised that he would save them, and he prepared for them a kingdom. Before he ever spoke a single atom into existence, before he ever laid the foundations of this world, that is what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were doing. He ever asked, what did God do before he created them? You think he was born? How can the infinite, eternally glorious God be born with himself? He can't be. You think he created everything? Because he had a U-shaped hole in his heart? Had to, had to fill it? Think that's why he created everything? He created everything for his own glory. And all of this was planned before he ever laid the foundation. God didn't roll the dice and say, I think I'll throw together some atoms. Let's see what happens. That's not how God did it. That everything was planned. Everything was purposed. It was written. It was intended for his glory. That everything would that happen on schedule. Everything would fall apart on schedule. Everybody would be saved right on schedule. All so that God could receive the glory for such a great salvation. Now, the Mormon doctrine teaches that all of us existed before he came into this world. Scripture teaches that Christ existed before he came into this world. Mormonism says you, you existed on the planet Kolob because your Heavenly Father uh, was populating Kolob with all of his spirit babies, with all of his multiple wives, and you had this existence before you came here, and now you have forgotten that previous existence. And when you earn salvation and return to the Father's presence, you will remember all of your previous existence as well as your time here. That's Mormon doctrine. That's heresy. That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that only one man existed before he came into this world, and that was Jesus Christ. And he existed not only before he came into this world, but he existed before the world was. Because Colossians chapter 1 says he is the image of the invisible God, is the creator of all things, of principalities and powers and authority of all things. He is head over all things. It all belongs to him. He is the one who created because he is the everlasting and eternal God. That is who Christ is. This verse demonstrates the glory of God. It demonstrates the deity of Christ. Because only somebody who is God in human flesh could pray this prayer 
and expect that kind of glory. And only somebody who is God in human flesh could have possessed the glory of God with the Father in its fullness before the world ever was. Now what does this mean for us? Let me give you two things. First, it should remind us of the great cost of our salvation. It should remind us of the great cost of our salvation. What did the Son give up to step out of heaven into this sin hole that you and I are part of? What did that cost him? I don't even think it is able, I don't even think that we are able to fully grasp the significance of that. Merely because we have never been there, have we? So we don't know what that is like. We didn't exist before we came here. We didn't exist there. We've never seen it. We've never, we can't describe it. We don't know what that was like. But what would it have been like, and we don't know, but imagine for a second, what would it have been like for the one who existed in perfect fellowship and harmony with the Father, face to face with the Father for all of eternity, enjoying that glory, to lay aside all of the conveniences and the worship of angels and that glory, and then to veil the glory of his person and his nature with human flesh and bones, and then to step into this world and to deal with all of the sinners, all of the death, all of the disease, all of the destruction, all of the strife and the conflict and the gossiping and sin that this world uh, means. We're used to it. We're surrounded by it. Unless you, live with your, unless you live with yourself, all by yourself, you woke up this morning in the presence of other sinners. And you have been surrounded all day long in the presence of other sinners. And you're sitting right next to another sinner looking at another sinner. And I'm looking at a whole bunch of sinners. We have no idea what it's like because we've never been in any other environment. But what did our salvation cost? The blessed Son of God to step out of that into, into this world. And then to humble himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And to lower himself to that for our sake and for our salvation and for his glory. And second, this is the example that you and I are called to follow. This is the example. That's why Paul says, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any fellowship with the Spirit, be of the same mind. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. We did not consider his equality with God something to be held on to. We laid that position of equality aside and stepped into human history become a man and to suffer and die on the cross. It's that example of humility that you and I are called to model and to follow. The example of one who is infinitely glorious, who would give up all of that to die on a wretched cross for the sake of unredeemed sinners, for the sake of all those whom the Father has given to us. That is the glory of our Savior, and that is the example that we are called to follow. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are so blessed to be able to contemplate and to reflect upon what your son did for our salvation. We thank you that ultimately it is all about your glory. We have had the opportunity to reflect upon those realities. And we're so grateful for our salvation. What that costs the son is, is beyond our ability to comprehend or even to fully appreciate. But open our eyes and our hearts to those realities and, and may we give God, our great God and Father, and our great God and Savior Jesus Christ the glory that you are due for what you have done on our behalf. Thank you that you have done everything for your sake and for your own glory, ultimately, and that we are recipients of that. We are unworthy recipients of that great grace. And so we thank you for it in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.